Father in heaven, what a, a beautiful truth to be reminded of this morning and that as we lift our voices, God, we pray that your spirit would meet our hearts. Um, that it'd be more than a song that we sing, that each and every person that's gathered here today, no matter what they've brought into this room, would experience an overwhelming sense of your mercy, of your grace, of your love. God, that it would truly just inhabit this place that as we turn our attention to the word and, and to the richness of the scriptures, God, it would shape us, it would mold us, and we would come eagerly expectant once again for you to do great things. And that we would experience all of that as a true act of your mercy. God, we are so overwhelmed by such mercy, and we give you our lives, we give you our hearts, our souls, and our minds as our only response of love and devotion. So be with us now, Father. And we pray all these things in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you all, church. You can be seated. Uh, all right, we're going to dive right into it. We've got quite a bit to cover this morning, but uh, what a great way to start with worship. And uh, as we prepare for turning to the Word, I do want to just reiterate, uh, by all means, the invitation to Family Jam this Wednesday is extended to all. Obviously, if you have family, it's going to be great to hear what's going on in children and youth ministry and what's on the horizon for the year. Uh, but we would love for everyone in the church to come because uh, there are needs in both of those ministry areas uh, for you to serve. And so if you have a heart or a passion for children or youth, uh, I emphasize the word need. Both those ministries are growing, uh, praise God. And so we could really benefit from having more hands, more people willing to invest in the spiritual formation of our youth and our children. So come and hear about that. And even if you don't necessarily feel led to serve in those areas, it'll still be great for you to come and hear what uh, the plans are so that you can be praying for those things. So mark that down for this Wednesday on the 23rd. And then as you heard Jason mention, the subsequent Wednesday on the 30th will be when we start all of our midweek activities. And one of the things that we hinted at last week and you heard again this morning is Theology Matters. Uh, that's something new that we're providing for adults. It's something that uh, I'm excited about. I intend to help really kind of host just this time at 6.30 on Wednesdays that is going to be an extension of the Sunday sermon. And by that, what I mean is an opportunity to create space to go deeper maybe on certain things that we've, we've hit on on the previous Sunday, but really to create a space for dialogue, for questions, for clarity, because one of the greatest limitations to the Sunday morning message is that it's one directional. Right, and so I don't have a chance to really interact with you all in here. Okay, what, what questions do you have? What was confusing? Where do you need clarity? And so I'm really looking forward to having that space on a regular basis on Wednesday. So one of the things I would encourage you to do, even starting today, start jotting down questions. Like, what, what, do I, what are you hearing that you want to hear more of or needs, uh, you need to see elaborated or uh, things that were confusing? Go ahead and jot those down. You can send them to me in advance. I can keep it anonymous. That way I know a little bit about what uh, you're wrestling with, and we can use that to help structure that time on the 30th. But I'm looking forward to it. 6.30, starting on August 30th, Theology Matters should be a great opportunity for us to uh, create those spaces for dialogue. Okay, that being said, we started our new series last week on identity, which was uh, another part of this continuation, this theme that we've established for this year, to live courageously. And the idea is that the way in which you know yourself, if you have a strong sense of self, that is going to enable you to live more courageously. Because if you don't know who you are, you are instinctively going to become a little bit more timid, more insecure, and you're either going to uh, hide behind those insecurities or try to mask them. But, but by having a strong sense of self, 
and understanding of why you exist, your purpose and who you are is going to inevitably lead to a courageous life. And so we introduced that theme in, in this series, perhaps more than any other we've done this year, is really going to build upon itself. So much of what we talked about last week uh, informs what we're talking about this week and so on and so forth. So if you haven't listened to last week's message, I'd encourage you to find time to do so. Um, I'm going to do a quick summary this morning and, and use it to kind of transition into another point of emphasis of where we want to go uh, for the next several weeks. And so last week we talked about this question of identity that really a fundamental question to the human existence is who am I? Right? It's an existential question, meaning it's a question about existence. Why do I exist? What is my purpose? Where do I find meaning? How do I interact with the world around me? And we acknowledge that this is a question that has been wrestled with from the very beginning. And we looked at different philosophical approaches, even highlighting Rene Descartes and his famous uh, uh, claim that I think, therefore I am, and how that shaped so much of Western philosophy, this idea that we exist because we are thinking beings. Uh, but we also acknowledge that it wasn't limited just to Western philosophy that often views the sense of self as this pilot, this kind of inner voice, this conscience. But Eastern philosophy, when it considers this, the idea of self, it would say the, the self is an illusion. Right? It doesn't even exist. It only exists in your mind when you think about it. But we're part of a whole collective of an existence, and, and we're really just designed to fit within this larger collection so that we either achieve nirvana or we achieve enlightenment, we, we rid ourselves of our personal desires. But the point was is that whether it's Western or Eastern philosophy, all cultures at some point or another have wrestled with this idea of existence, of identity, and come up with a lot of different answers to it. So we turn to Ecclesiastes and the words of Solomon. Ecclesiastes is very much an existential book. Solomon is wrestling with who he is, his purpose, his identity. And you see that in the very opening pages of, of Ecclesiastes where he says, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Or as we talked last week, vapor, vapor. Everything is utterly vaporous. It's this chasing after the wind. Solomon details in that book, whether it's the acclamation of power, of wealth, of pleasure, of wisdom, it all feels meaningless, like a chasing after the wind. And so the conclusion that he arrives at in, in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes is to fear God, All right? Fear God, obey his commands. And what you can take away from the overarching framework of Ecclesiastes is that you really have two choices to answer this question of who am I? You can either take a self-centered view and try to find it in all things in this world, or you can take a God-centered view. And obviously Solomon argues for the God-centered view. And, and that kind of led us to a very important uh, conclusion that I want to reemphasize as we begin this morning, right? That your search for meaning, right? Your seeking for understanding why you exist that everyone carries is really a search for something that lasts, right? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has set eternity in the hearts of mankind, but man cannot fathom what he has done from beginning to end. And so this is why it's a quest. This is why it's a search. Because the way in you and I define meaning is something that endures, something that outlives us, something that has some sort of significance. What that tells you is that your heart is longing for the eternal. Why is that? Well, the conclusion that we emphasize is because you were made in the image of the eternal. Right? He put his fingerprints on you. You, you have this longing for eternity because you were made in the image of the one who is eternal. 
And that's where this seeking and this quest for meaning and identity really begins, okay? And so we are going to launch into an in-depth series on what it means to be made in the image of God and how that is such a foundational uh, understanding of our sense of self and existence and purpose. But before we get to that, we have a little bit more that we need to cover today. Consider this maybe part two of the introduction. Because part one essentially brings to the surface the fact that we all ask this question of existence. Who am I? What's my, what's my purpose here? Part two is how are we answering that today? How do we see our society, both collectively and also as individuals, answering the question of identity? How, how do we see that way of thinking to find meaning and significance working itself out in the culture around us? And we need to first diagnose this and understand our impulses, kind of our, our current intuition to answer those questions, so that we can identify maybe where we might be influenced by those voices so that when we come to the text, we can hear it more objectively and clearly. And so what I want to suggest to us this morning is that when you look at our society, you look at our culture, you see a society and a culture that is in crisis, both collectively and individually. And so you might push back on that. And so let me just offer my explanation to why I would say that. The, the word crisis would be defined as an experiencing intense hardship, difficulty, or trouble. And, and so there's a lot of different ways you can experience crisis. And what I would tell you is that when you look around society, we see intense experiences of hardship, difficulty, trouble, problems in so many different arenas. Right? Let me just name a few. Think about the increased anger and violence and hostility that now exists in our culture. It just, it's, it's everywhere. And you can identify in so many different places, whether it's an increase in mass shootings or it's, it's the, the way that we just constantly disrespect one another in public. You hear stories of neighbors getting into altercations, the way that people treat one another on airlines these days. You can see this hostility driven towards people based on the color of their skin or their lifestyle, and there's just animosity and anger. We, we see it in the political arena as well. We see a crisis there. Uh, what we find now is that everything is becoming political. Right? The world of politics used to be confined to some pretty standard subjects like the economy and foreign policy. But now there are these new battlegrounds in the political arena. Right? Schools, libraries, bathrooms, sports, everything has become political with this increased hostility because of this uh, polarization that we see within the world of politics. You see an overwhelming questioning of traditional structures. Right? We, we question businesses. We, we don't trust them anymore. We don't trust our government. We're, we're reevaluating whether or not we trust family and marriage and gender. We, we have all these kind of traditional structures that have been the fabric of our society that we're, we're questioning, we're, we're wrestling with. It's in crisis. All of that happening with an amazing development within the world of technology. Technology advances that are both simultaneously awe-inspiring and terrifying, and they're developing at such neck-breaking paces that it is disorienting us to where we don't even really understand how to better interact with one another or the world around us. All of this taking place while we still have concerns of traditional threats, like foreign adversaries that might be looking for ways to prey upon the vulnerabilities of our society. And so all these different things you see uh, a panic and a response both societally, 
culturally, individually, with increases in depression, suicide rates, loneliness, anxiety, all these different things. We are in crisis. And, and so that's why I say that. Now, the reality is, and what I want to make sure I say at the beginning, is that none of those things has just like one simple answer. Right? That's the last thing I want to insinuate with today's message. When you look at the complexities of all the things that have created the myriad of things I've just briefly covered, it's super complex, and as a result, it requires complex solutions. So I'm not suggesting there's just one easy answer to that, but I do want to hit on one aspect of it today that I do think tends to be somewhat of a predominant factor across all these different areas of crises. And what I would tell you is that the crisis we see, more often than not, and those things that we see taking place in our culture are expressions of a crisis of identity. And, and so let me explain to you why I mean that, or why I say that. When you think about someone's response to a crisis, it tends to be fight or flight. That's the easiest you know, way to kind of reduce your, your typical responses. I know there are a few others, but for sake of discussion, typically fight or flight. And depending on the crisis, kind of determines what that fight or flight looks like. For example, if somebody breaks into your home, fight or flight is going to be very literal. Like you're either going to run out of your house or you're going to fight the intruder. When it is a crisis of identity, fight or flight looks a little bit different, but, but it's still there. So give you an example. Let's talk about the midlife crisis. I just turned 41 not too long ago, earlier this year. So I'm in the prime stage ready for a midlife crisis. So prayers appreciated, church. Because uh, we all know the stereotypical response to a midlife crisis. Like before too long, I'm showing up at home with a new sports car and I haven't told Jennifer about it. And I'm like, what's up, you know? And, and you just start to do really impulsive things, apparently, when you hit this midlife crisis. Well, what, what's going on there? Why is that? There's an article in Forbes Health that talks about the midlife crisis. And uh, Michael G. Wetter, who is a psychologist in LA, here's how he defines it. He says, a midlife crisis is a period or phase of life transition when a person begins to question the things that they've accomplished or achieved and whether those same things still provide a sense of fulfillment and meaning, right? So what, what sparks this is that you get to 40 and 50, you're more aware of your mortality, and so you look back at all that you've accomplished, all that you've done, and you start wondering, is that enough? Like, is this it? And, and you really start to question, like, is this the job that I really am going to have my whole life defined by? Is this my family? Is, is this it? And you question all these things you previously accomplished. And in, in, in certain ways, when you struggle to figure out if that actually still provides meaning to you, that's when you start responding with impulsive reactions and impulsive behavior. You buy the new car, you quit the job, you move homes. This is where you see an uptick in infidelity, right? Marriages begin to crumble, like all of it because it's called into question. So take that definition and apply it to our society, right? Because what we're seeing culturally is everyone is looking back on things that they used to see as meaningful, right? Whether it's politics or whether it's uh, traditional institutions or whatever, we're questioning the way that we used to do things, even our own history, our founding document, we're, we're wrestling with all of it and we're wondering, is this really where we find meaning? And because we're questioning that you're seeing this, this uh, response, kind of this impulsive behavior to try to find meaning in new things and in new ways across our culture. Here's how Wetter continues. He says, more often than not, this midlife crisis represents a shift in perspective relative to one's self-image. 
right? So that's what's happening in the individual. That's what's happening in our society. We are having a shift in the way in which we see ourselves, both individually and as a society. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning, that shift. Like, like what is happening all around us and how it is reorienting our ability to understand who we are and how we interact with the world around us, okay? And so to do this, I wanna start with a biblical framework, okay? We're gonna start with scripture. I've got a couple verses here at the beginning, then we're gonna dive into some of the things we've seen culturally and then we'll end with another passage, okay? Um, and most of these passages on the front end are reviews of previous texts that we've covered in the last year or two. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. Earlier this year, one of the other series that we covered was a series we titled, What is Truth? And truth was another big ingredient to being able to live courageously, right? That you wanna have a good sense of truth and you wanna be able to anchor your response in that which is true and not which is false. And, and that idea of truth is directly correlated to our understanding of identity, right? Because you're gonna also ask yourself, what is true? And if you're asking alongside that, who am I? You're looking for a voice of truth to help you answer who you are, right? And so these two things go very hand in hand. And so here's this, this incredible story of Jesus before Pilate. And, and there's this accusation that has been brought towards Jesus about him claiming to be king. And so Pilate asks him about that charge. And here's how the interaction goes in verse 37. Pilate says, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. All right, so, so that is a profound statement from Jesus. The whole reason I came, everything I did, everything I'm doing, is to testify to that which is true. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Here's the reality. Every single person decides to have a voice of truth in their life. Every single person. And you can choose from a myriad of options. Right? It could be your parents. It could be a spouse. It could be uh, a philosophy, a system of government, it could be a religion, but every single person evaluates and decides, where am I going to find truth? What voice am I going to listen to? And when we answer that question, we are essentially giving that voice authority. We're saying, you're gonna be the authority to give me my understanding of truth, to give me the answer of who I am. So ask yourself, what voice do you listen to? There are a number of different voices that are out there. What Jesus has said is that I came here to testify to that which is true. If you're going to find truth, you listen to my voice. That is integral to us understanding this question of identity. To answer who we are, we have to listen to the voice of Christ. But that is increasingly Difficult, isn't it? Um, okay, here's the next text. I joked about it last week. I'm actually serious this week. Turn to Romans 1. And I know, you're like, y'all, we've been living in Romans, but do it anyway. Uh, Romans chapter 1 is probably one of the greatest, um, what I would say, depictions of where we are in the shift that we see taking place in our culture. So we're just going to quickly review this as we discuss it this morning. So picking up in verse 18, 
It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Let's stop there. So here's, here's the point. Culture, society, the world, your fleshly nature is gonna do everything it can to suppress the voice of Jesus. Everything it can to convince you to not listen to him, to go to your own desires, right? That he's outdated, the Bible's contradictory, it's bigoted, it's only for white evangelical Republicans, whatever it can do to convince you that it's not credible, that's what the world's gonna try to do. It's going to try to suppress the voice of Christ, right? And, and that's the first way that we begin to be led astray. Look and see how it continues. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That's very important. So that people are without excuse. Right, so what happens is, is though we try to suppress the truth, God looks at us and says, what I have done is clear. It has been made plain. You don't have an excuse because I have revealed myself, my invisible qualities, my divine nature, my eternal power, it has been put on display. You have no excuse. How has he put it on display? By what has been made. Right, the revelation of God as creator. Right, and so that is a fundamental aspect to the message today that we can't lose sight of. We'll come back to it. Here's the problem, okay? What that's saying is, is that the voice of truth, the voice of authority should all come from God, but, but we don't listen to it. Here's what happens, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So this is the great exchange. This is the shift, right? So what happens in the human heart, what, what happens in this crisis of identity is though God has made himself plain, we decide, you know, I'm not gonna listen to your voice. I'm not going to glorify you or give thanks to you. And so we go our own way and what the scripture says is that then our thinking becomes futile, right? It's, it's empty, it's pointless, and our foolish hearts become darkened. And so we start to live away absent of wisdom, absent of truth, but here's what's crazy about it. We will claim to be wise. And isn't that true for a society today? As we see the shift and we see all these different things, though it seems like we're in crisis, we do it in the name of what we say is wisdom, right? We do it in the name of progress or patriotism or advancement, or enlightenment, or whatever it is, we claim that it's wise, but in the end, it's foolish. It's darkened, because what's happened is we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We are worshiping created things rather than the creator. What Romans 1 identifies for us is it's idolatry, right? And when you hear the word idolatry, a lot of times we think of an image carved out of stone or wood, and it doesn't require an image carved out of stone of wood to be idolatrous. You can be idolatrous in a number of different ways, chasing after ideas, philosophies, whatever it is. It's anything that you worship or pursue independent from your creator, anything you elevate above him and give a greater authority than him, right? And so this is idolatry. So how does God 
respond to idolatry. Let's take a look. Verse 24, just the first part of 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So here's the shift. Here's what happens. Essentially, this is the verse that tells us God is like the parent that looks at the child and says, you, th- you think you don't need me? Okay, go ahead. See how that goes for you, right? Like, like those are these moments where you, you as a parent know that your child needs you, so you let them pursue it on their own, you let them fail, you let them struggle with the hopes that they're gonna come back and say, okay, I, I need my father's voice, I need my mother's voice. This is what's happening. What God does is he says, I'm life, I'm justice, I'm truth, I'm grace, I'm love. You think you can find meaning apart from me, go for it. I will give you over to the desires of your heart. And that's exactly what we do. Right now, our truth, our authority is no longer in God, it's in our desires. Right, it's, it's in our own impulses. Now what's interesting is if you were to finish off chapter one, which we're not going to today, is one of the first manifestations of idolatry that is referenced here is sexual impurity. That's really interesting. We're gonna come back to that in a couple of weeks. But, but listen, if you look through the whole teaching of chapter one, it is a wide list of envy, of murder, disobeying your parents, like it's all of it. And so here's the biblical framework that explains what we're talking about with this identity crisis, that what has happened, what has just been detailed for us in Romans chapter one, is that we have gone from finding authority and truth beyond ourselves to within ourselves. And that creates a significant crisis of identity. And that's what we're dealing with today. Right? We are seeking to find all these different things of meaning by looking within rather than looking beyond. And so how did we get there? Like how does that develop? And that's what I wanna talk through a little bit further this morning. Let's talk about this from a cultural perspective with that biblical framework in mind. Um, here, here's, here's what you see from a cultural perspective. We talked a lot about this last week with Descartes. Right? Descartes comes along and he says, I think, therefore I am. And he identifies the importance of this inner voice, right? the sense of self, the thinking being. And, and part of what we discover is that what Descartes is really trying to describe, it's nothing new. In fact, to borrow from Ecclesiastes uh, from last week, at one point Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. Now what does he mean by that? Right? Because clearly there are new things. Like there are new inventions, new technologies. It's not like King Nebuchadnezzar was strolling around the palace on his iPhone taking selfies and uploading it in its snap. I mean like there are new things. So what Solomon is saying is that there's nothing new as it pertains to uh, meaning, right? No matter where you are in the time of human history, you could always find meaning through power, through wealth, through indulgences or whatever. There's nothing new in that regard. So what you and I can do is we can look at people like Descartes, we can look at where we are today in modern understanding, and we can look back and say, this isn't new, right? These questions of philosophy, these questions of existence, these questions of identity have always been there. Philosophers have wrestled with them, the church has wrestled with them, and we can learn from the past to better understand the present. 
right? And so Descartes' idea of being this thinking individual, that was built upon other ideas. And what Descartes was really explaining there was this traditional understanding of body and soul. Now, he put it in different words, the thinking being, the thinking self. But we all recognize that there's this this understanding of body and soul. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time, or have you ever, really wrestled with what the scriptures say and how they inform your understanding of body and soul and how the two relate to one another? If you haven't wrestled with that and sought the scriptures, I implore you to do so through the course of this series. And we'll do that somewhat together. That's a huge part of what the image of God does because understanding what it means to have a body, what it means to have a soul, and how the two relate to one another is vitally important. It's critical to understanding your sense of identity. And it is an age-old question. Um, One of the sources that I like to lean on when when researching some of these things is Britannica.com because it feels very objective in in today's world. It feels more informative as opposed to trying to present a particular side or bias. And so much of what I'm going to be referencing here for the next few minutes comes from Britannica.com. But I I got on there and I looked at kind of the history of this understanding of soul. And and it offered some really good insight that, again, this has been an age-old question from the very beginning, that ancient Egyptians had this idea of a dual soul, that you actually had two. Uh, The ancient Chinese had a similar Concept, but listen to what Britannica.com says about the ancient Hebrews, all right, the people of God. The foundational for our upcoming weeks of Hebrews, um, here's what it says. The early Hebrews had a concept of the soul, but did not separate it from the body. Biblical references to the soul are related to the concept of breath and establish no distinction between the ethereal soul and the corporal body. So the biblical, Britannica is not a commentary, right? It's not a a theologian. They're just informing you. It is is such a clear understanding that the ancient scriptures, the, the biblical Old Testament, the people of God never saw a distinction between body and soul, right? They are taught one in the same, and we'll see that play out as we walk through this series. Now that probably, if you're like me, lands a little odd for you. And, and even can be difficult to get 